Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, continue to take your word and plant it deep within our hearts. Cause us to know you more truly, that we might more and more see the full faithfulness of Jesus our Lord towards you, and how he has poured upon us his graces, his goodness and his mercy, and his righteousness is given to us as if it were our own, that we might be made right before you, O Father. Plant all of this deep within us that we would know you and your Son, Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen. So last week, we read through the beginning of Mark chapter 10, and we heard about the Pharisees asking Jesus about marriage and divorce. And Jesus pointed them to the reality that it is the hardness of their hearts that is the problem. Their stoniness, their refusal to acknowledge their brokenness before God that creates the need and the exception that Moses made. That it wasn't intended to be that way from the beginning. And then after that, as the disciples were shocked at such a strict teaching about marriage and divorce, Jesus looks at them as they are pushing away children and trying to keep children from coming to them and rebukes them and reminds them that to such belongs the kingdom of God. That whoever receives the kingdom like a child shall enter it. Which puts us back just a few verses back over to Mark chapter 9 where he does basically the same thing when they were arguing about who was the greatest. He put a child in their midst and said, be like this child. Serve this child and you will be great. Whoever receives such a child receives me, Jesus told them. And right before that, he had told them of his coming death and resurrection, which left them confused. And right after this passage that we just read, Jesus again tells of his own death and resurrection coming, leaving the disciples confused that this whole section is couched in the reality of Jesus telling his disciples, I am going to die, but I will be raised again. I will come back from the dead. That he is on his way to Jerusalem right now. In, our, in this section of Mark, he is moving toward Jerusalem, knowing what is coming, that he will die for the sins of the world. He knows what's about to happen to himself, even if his disciples don't get anything that's going on. They barely catch a glimmer of what's to come. Their own stoniness and hardness of heart is blinding them to what Jesus is going to accomplish, to what he is striving to do for them as he teaches them, as he guides them, as he disciples them and opens their eyes little by little to the reality of who he is, taking them away from their hard-heartedness, taking them away from the idolatry that that hard-heartedness creates, that their hard-heartedness is first and foremost toward God himself, which means that they have set up something else to worship. And if they're not turned away from that path, they'll fulfill so many of the sayings throughout the Old Testament where it speaks of the people worshiping various kinds of idols and their hearts and their minds and their eyes and their mouths becoming the same as the idols. They become deaf and dumb and blind because that's what an idol is. The people slowly become that as they worship these idols, they become what they worship. 
And Jesus is turning the people away. He's striving and teaching his disciples that they should turn away from themselves and turn toward him. That they would have true eyes to see, that they would have true ears to hear, that they would have true mouths that would speak the truth. And in all of this passage, we're being directed to the fact that despite the stoniness of our own hearts and our own commitment to idols, God the Father is providing a path of salvation through Jesus himself by confronting us with those very idols through the law. God the Father has given us his law to confront us, to condemn us, to drive us to Christ. And that's what Jesus does in this passage to this rich young man, to this young man who comes to him. He confronts him with just the absolute strictness of the law in order to begin opening his eyes. So that's where we'll just begin simply today. We can begin in there in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10 with a question of inheritance. This young man comes up to Jesus, not just coming up to him, he runs up to him and kneels before him and asks him a question. Already right away we see that this man is different from all these other encounters Jesus has recently had with the Pharisees who are constantly coming and tempting him, trying to test him and trick him, trying to deceive him into making a mistake. This man is coming up and legitimately asking him a question, and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This question of inheritance right away tells us something about this young man, I think. He asks what he should do to inherit eternal life. Do you do anything to inherit stuff? If someone dies and you receive something from them, did you do anything to receive that? Or did they just simply leave it for you to be received? And so right away in this milieu, in this environment, this man has become confused about inheritance, that God has made promises that he is going to keep. God has promised to Israel and to all who have faith that he will bring to them the age to come. But this man is confused because there is so much confusion sown in this time. And says, what must I do to inherit? What do I do? What is the very thing that is necessary for me to go into eternal life? And this isn't an odd question, even though it seems strange to ask about inheriting something. This man is coming to Jesus, seeing him as just another one of the sects that existed within Judaism. As a Pharisee, or maybe as an Essene, or maybe as a Sadducee. They all added on to God's word. They all said, well, you keep the commandments, but then you do these special things to be part of our in-group, to be part of this other group, and you will be able to know that you will inherit eternal life, that you will be able to enter into the age to come, into new life, into the renewed creation, because that's what they mean by eternal life here. That's what the kingdom of God is ultimately looking toward is the new creation. It's not looking to escape this physical world, to escape being in a body, to go be a bodiless soul floating up in the sky. The Jews of that day got that right. They understood that there was a new creation coming. They knew that God was going to renew all things and he would purge sin and judge the wicked and reward the faithful. They knew that a renewal was coming to all of creation by God's work. And so they wanted to know what they had to do to enter it. And all these other sects would say, well, you've got to do this extra stuff. Come join us. 
come be part of our group and we'll teach you and put you on that path toward eternal life, toward that age to come, so that you can escape from the current age, from the present age, from the sinfulness of this world. That's what's behind this man's question, this desire to get to that age to come, but he thinks that he can inherit it. He thinks he can earn it. He thinks he can lay hold of it by doing extra deeds, by going above and beyond what God has told him to do. And you also see it in how he addresses Jesus. He says, good teacher. He assumes that man can be good in some way. He assumes that man can be good before not only other men, but before God himself in and of themselves. And Jesus confronts both of these things, both this idea that man can be good and this idea that man can work to inherit the age to come. And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God himself. God in and of himself is good. And no man is good compared to God. And so Jesus is nudging him gently, saying, if you don't believe that man is wicked in and of himself, then you don't know what you're talking about here. Why are you calling me good if you think I'm just a mere teacher? If I'm just a mere man and no one is good except God alone, then I can't be good unless you're beginning to see something different in me. You're beginning to recognize something, that I'm not just an ordinary man, that I'm not just some regular old Joe on the street. But if God is truly good and the only truly good one, and you believe that I am good, then that means that you either misunderstand goodness or you're seeing something deeper about who I am. But Jesus doesn't press that point much more except in that way. No one is good except God. And he lets that hang in the air before this young man. And then he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. I like how Chad Bird has put it so often when he looks at these passages about Jesus encountering people, asking him questions. If you ask a law question, you're going to get a law answer. This man asks, what do I do to get, what do I do to lay hold of, to obtain, to inherit? What do I do? And Jesus tells him, well, go do the commandments. Go do those commandments. He points him at those commandments, and in particular, as you read them, to the second half of the commandments, the second table, the ones that focus on our horizontal relationships primarily. That focus on how we interact with our neighbors. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. There's two things that jump out at me in this retelling of these six commandments. One is, he doesn't say do not covet. He says do not defraud. This is something else that Chad Bird, a Lutheran commentator, notes about this passage. Do not defraud. It's like... That's the outward working of coveting. Coveting is focused on the interior life, the interior attitude of how we view the things that other people have. And it's a desire to have what God has given them and not given to us. And to develop a desire to try to take it from them. To want to have what is theirs simply because it is theirs and not yours. And defrauding someone is the outward working of that coveting. When we defraud someone, we rip them off. We trick them into giving us what they have. 
We deceive them into giving it to us. And so that's the outward working. That's the outward actions that come from a covetous heart. To reach out and trick someone into giving us what is theirs by right. And so Jesus says, do not defraud people. Do not rip them off. Do not deceive them into giving you their goods. And then he wraps this up with honor your father and mother. When we read through the commandments, that comes before all of these. But Jesus shifts it to the very end. As if to say, really reflect for a moment. Have you really done these things? Have you honored your father and mother? Oftentimes in a list, the last item is the one that is the most prominent for you to think about. Have you really cared about your parents? Have you worked hard to give to your workers that which is rightfully theirs? He's a rich man, so he probably has lots of people working for him. He has employees. He has servants. Are you doing right by them? Have you done right by your parents? Those two things jump out at me in this list as the ones that are the most easy to break in this list. But this man is unfazed. He is unfazed with the introspection that Jesus calls him to, and he simply says, I've kept all these things. I've done all this from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus didn't get snappy with him. He didn't get sarcastic with him. He looked at him and he loved him. He had compassion. He had mercy inside of himself toward this man. And he says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus looks at this man and he loves him despite his own blindness, despite the stoniness of his heart, despite him refusing a deeper introspection. That on, while on one level he can say, yes, I'm blameless because I have a zealousness for keeping the law. And in that zealousness, if I break the law, I give this right and proper sacrifices that the law commands. So on a surface level, he's blameless like Job is considered blameless. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth have been considered blameless. That they are blameless because they have a zeal for the law, but they differ from him in the fact that they also have faith and trust in God's promises. He hasn't reached that point. He hasn't, so to speak, climbed over the wall into real faith yet. He is still owned by his actions. He is owned by his behaviors. He is owned by his earthly treasure. Because when Jesus confronts him with that stoniness and that idolatry by pointing to the one thing that he clings to more in this life than anything else, he's disheartened. And that's a fun word, disheartened. It's actually a very strong word. When I hear disheartened, I kind of think of just general sadness at what's going on. I'm disheartened. I'm put down. I'm just kind of put off by the situation. But that Greek word behind it is used in a lot of other places, and often it has a much deeper and harder meaning. There's a gloominess, a deep sadness, a deep regret that is happening here. One way it could be translated is, is his brow darkened. There's a sense of not only gloom, but frustration with what Jesus says. Jesus put his finger on the very nerve that was keeping him from God by saying, give away everything you have and follow me. 
This stands in your way of true worship of God because it is your idol. It is what you are committed to, what you trust, and what you believe in. And so Jesus used the full bore of the law upon this man. He doesn't add anything new to the law. He just takes the simple law and he drives it home and says, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. You'll have treasure ready for the new creation and then come and follow me. Come and pursue me. Come and look for me. Don't come walk beside me, but come and learn. Come and see where I go so that you will understand what you need to do. So that you will understand that as I go to the cross to die for your sins, you are called to bear a cross and die to those things which would steal you from me, which blind you and confuse you and drive you to believe that you can earn your way to salvation. That you are committed to, you must turn away from if you are to have real trust in me, to confess that that is there. And this man went away deeply sorrowful because of this, because he had so much stuff. He had so much that he worshipped besides God. He had other things of this earth that he trusted more than Jesus himself because he wouldn't follow after him. St. Augustine said, through the overpowering love of what was use, of what was valueless, he lost possession of what was of greatest price. He loved the world too much, and so he walked away from Jesus. One of the few people Maybe the only person that is explicitly said that came and asked Jesus an honest question that walked away and didn't follow him immediately. And this leads to something else. This leads to a question of entering the kingdom. Jesus tells his disciples that it will be difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, and they are amazed. They're shocked. And Jesus doubles down again. He says how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Who can be saved? And Jesus said to them, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It is not impossible for God to save us. The question of entrance is here that it is God who is working. Our wealth, our possessions, our idols... Whatever those possessions may be, everything that we have in this world can become an idol. We can become more concerned with the loss of our stuff than we can with the loss of Jesus. We can become blinded to that reality, and that's why Jesus reminds his disciples of just the depth of hardness of entering the kingdom of God when you have stuff, when you're well off, when you can take care of yourself, when you're not dependent day to day on the world around you. When you can be fully sufficient in and of yourself, you become blind to the workings of God in this world. You become blind to the work of Jesus. You become blind to the need of Jesus that you have. And so a rich person cannot enter the kingdom of God because they love their riches so much. It's not because wealth is wrong, but it's because of that love of their wealth. Many people in Scripture had wealth and they were faithful because they loved God more than that wealth. They loved God above all and no matter what happened, they were secure in their knowledge of who God was and that He was the great promise keeper, that He would fulfill all of His promise, that He would fulfill His honor before the world and answer His own promises and bring them to pass. Again, in that culture, 
The wealthy were viewed as blessed above and beyond by God himself. Wealth was a sign of God's grace. Wealth was a sign of God's pleasure toward that person. It's kind of funny because throughout the Old Testament, that's never made explicit. There are times where it speaks of God giving wealth to those that he is pleased with, but yet he turns around and constantly tears apart the rich and the wealthy for how they abuse the poor, for how they defraud people, for how they seek after their wealth above all else and become obsessed with themselves. In so many ways, that was part of the foundation of the downfall of Israel and Judah. They served their wealth above God. They were concerned with wealth. They were concerned with idols. Their stoniness led them away from God and to turn them back to himself, he brought the full impact of the law upon them, that they were simply breaking the simple Ten Commandments, and he brought to bear upon them the law itself and sent them into exile. He took them out of the land. He destroyed the temple that they knew was the place where God met them. He took away the place of sacrifice from them in order to confront them with the reality of their sin, of the idolatry that was eating them alive, that they were constantly turning toward more and more. He drove them into exile in order that he could answer this question of entering the kingdom that he would bring them into the kingdom. He would act. He would work in them. He would renew them and bring them to himself because all things are possible with God. He will act when the time is right. But we cannot force his hand. We cannot lay hold of these blessings. We cannot lay hold of eternal life by our good deeds. We can only simply trust God to fulfill his promises, that he is the promise keeper, and we are the promise breakers. Despite that, he overlooks our stoniness and our idolatry in order to make a path for our salvation. Which leads to the last section here, these last few verses, 28 through 31, which introduces, I think, a question of receiving, which I'm already addressing, that we just simply receive what God has given to us. We receive his promises. We receive the work. And I love how Mark puts it, that Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we've left everything to follow you. I love how Mark says he began. I think Peter probably had a whole lot more. He probably had a full prepared speech to give to Jesus about everything that the disciples had done. But before he could get to it, Jesus cuts him off. As soon as he gets out that statement of, we've done this, we've left everything and followed you, Jesus cuts him off and says, truly, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. See, it's not just the disciples. Jesus quickly takes Peter away from his actions, away from his good deed of leaving everything, of him and his fellow disciples leaving everything, Jesus tries to direct him away that, well, anyone who does this, everyone who leaves and abandons all of this in this world for my sake and for the gospel, it's not just the act of abandoning your wealth. It's not the act of being willing and walking away from your house and your family. But it's when you do those things for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel that he is forgiving us through his death and resurrection and bringing a new life into us. Those people who leave all for the sake of Jesus and the gospel will receive a hundredfold now in this time with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. A new kind of life will be theirs in the age to come. A new kind of life that enters into this age right now. 
that's seen in that receiving of the hundredfold back. That we are united in a way that we were never united to our immediate family. To one another in Christ, we receive the fullness of salvation. And in Christ, we receive the fullness of communion, not only with Him, but with one another. Though we are not blood-related, though we are not interconnected with one another, in Jesus, we become one. And thus, in becoming one, we've received a hundredfold of everything we've left behind. Because we are called to love the brothers and sisters. We are called to care for one another. We are called to lift one another up. We are called to care and watch over each other. And so in that way, we receive houses and lands and brothers and sisters and mothers and children. Because we are united in Christ. We are brought together through faith and baptism to know Jesus more and more deeply. And all of this, though, comes with persecutions. It comes with the struggle against the world. The world that hates Jesus hates us. And as we become more and more consistent in our love of Jesus, the world will become more and more consistent in its hatred of us. They go hand in hand. That as the faithful become more faithful, the world becomes more hateful. As we turn away from the stoniness of our own hearts, from the idolatry of our own hearts, the world will despise us for seeing that there is something beyond this world. That there is a promise keeper, a God who will come and save us, who provides a true path toward Him. That we will receive eternal life, and that eternal life begins now. We begin to receive that new life as we look to Jesus and give up everything for His sake. As we give up our very lives and take up our cross and follow Him, we will know His life. We'll know His resurrection life flowing through our very veins. We'll know renewal in a way that we never knew before. And Jesus wraps all of this up, but many who are first will be last and the last first. There's an unexpectedness to this salvation, to this reception of freedom, to this reception of the goodness of God, that those that we see as being at the front of the line will end up being at the end. And those that we never noticed because they were behind us will suddenly see at the front. We'll see those who truly love Jesus at the front of the line because they depended on him in a way that some of us never did. Though we had faith, we find out that our faith was not quite as crisp or as strong or as pure as we thought but that's okay we know that in advance and we can begin working our faith out we begin confessing the impurities in our lives we can begin more and more drawing near to love jesus to look away from ourselves and to look to that cross where he died to look and see his resurrection and to know that all depends on that the purity of my faith is not what saves me. It is the purity of Jesus' actions on my behalf that saved me. And it's okay if I would, thought I would be first and I end up last. Because Jesus has died for my sins. Because God the Father has made a path of salvation for me. And despite that stoniness and idolatry that exists in me, He forgives me and calls me to Himself and desires for me to continually turn to Him and away from those idols. And so may we turn from our idols. May we turn to Jesus and know Him and His Father more and more. And through that, be confronted more and more with our lack, 
with their inability to do that which is truly good because there is none that are good but God himself. And that means Jesus is the only good man that we can know. And through faith we know him. And may we follow him all of our lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.